Minister to uh, welcome Dr. Narona, who's here today to kick us off for the Hillary Term Board of Criminology's uh, Lunchtime Seminar Series. And Luke is going to be sharing with us some of his doctoral research, which has been conducted in Jamaica. Yeah. yeah, so thanks very much for the invite. It's nice to be at Board of Criminologies. We've spoken a lot on Twitter and email and written for you, but um, it's nice to be here. So yeah, this is very much work in progress. I finished my field work, um, came back from Jamaica in November, um, and now I'm beginning to write. So yeah, I'm looking for feedback, and this presentation is mainly going to be quite descriptive um, and offer some early kind of reflections and um, indications of where my analysis is going. So I wanted to start by telling you Amari's story. Uh, he was deported to Jamaica on the charter flight, which some of you may have heard about, on the 7th of September 2016. I met him a few days after he landed back in Kingston. He was highly agitated, he couldn't stand still, and he had a lot to say. He moved to the UK when he was six to be with his mum, but from the age of 13 to 18 he lived in, in care and he was, he was looked after by Hackney Social Services. Um, he had indefinite leave to remain from being, a, from being a kid so he could work, access benefits. Uh, and he'd never spent any time in adult prison, but he did have a criminal record. So in his own words, to describe his kind of criminal engagement with the criminal justice system as a minor, my older offences were antisocial breaches from when I lived in a care home. We weren't allowed on the street that we lived on. The four boys from the care home were never allowed to walk together, so if the police saw you together, you'd be arrested for breach of ASBO. I normally got community service. I also got done for possession of weed. All of, my all of my convictions were from having a rough childhood. All of them were from growing up in care. As a, so as a minor, he received antisocial behaviour orders. He was caught with marijuana. He got into a couple of fights when he was 15, once with one of his care workers. And he did two months in a youth prison as a 15-year-old or 16-year-old for carrying a knife. Then, in 2013, as an adult, he was given a fine for arguing with a ticket officer on a London tube. Um, and that's where his criminal record ends. So, the two months in prison and the fine for public order offence arguing with a, with a ticket officer. He told me he didn't like the police, and here you have to excuse the swearing, but this is what he said. I'm fucking black, I live in East London, of course the police are going to give me shit and find a way to abuse me. I know what they are and I know how they behave, I've had it all my life. So Amari was then arrested in 2015 and accused of handling stolen goods. He was stopped and searched and he had his friend's bank card. Um, so they arrested him and accused him of handling stolen goods. They investigated, spoke to his friend, looked at his payslips, searched his house, but after four weeks pursued no further action. And then a couple of weeks after this ordeal, the immigration authorities got in touch, sent him a letter and said he was no longer able to work. He had to sign at a Home Office reporting centre weekly he spoke to someone at the reporting centre and realised, clocked himself quite quickly, that they were going to try and deport him, although he wasn't sure why, given he had indefinite leave to remain. So he stopped signing. But then one Sunday in October, they came to his house and detained him. About six big guys came to detain him in his house with his girlfriend. She was heavily pregnant, and his son was born two, two weeks later while he was in detention. He then spent 10 months in detention and became increasingly frustrated and angry. He was moved around the detention estate, bullied by guards and unable to control his temper. He then got into a fight and was moved to Peterborough Prison, where the guards were even worse, he said. 
So this is him talking about the effects of detention. They were saying I'm not rehabilitated, and I wasn't at that point. I was going mad. I was losing my hair, I was losing my mind, I was losing my flat and my life and my family. In detention I was going mad, but I was rehabilitated before. He goes on, Missing the birth of my first child really affected me. I wanted to be there, and now I want to be there for all of his first things, his first tooth and his first time crawling around the house. They took the most important things from me. And then they try to make it seem like I'm bad for being aggressive and angry and pissed off with staff, treating me like a dog. In the end, his, his behaviour in detention, his fights and his, his arguing with guards was used against him. And the judge said he'd clearly not rehabilitated using reports from detention. And so on the 7th of September 2016, with 41 other Jamaican nationals, he was deported on a private chartered plane by a cover of darkness from Stansted to Kingston. And he had his 24th birthday one week after landing in Jamaica. So what does Amari's story tell us? I mean, firstly, the sadness and cruelty of it provides a kind of vivid account of the violence of deportation. People, who are, deport- people are often deported from their home in the world to a place they have few or no memories of and a place they fear. And part of my work is to bear witness and to share the stories of people who have been exiled from home. But as Innes Hasselberg states, deportation begins long before anyone actually gets on a plane. So if we want to understand Amari's life and understand how he ended up on that plane, we need to go back further, before his detention, to understand his whole life in the UK and his relationship to the state in a broader sense. Only then can we begin to understand why he was, in the end, subjected to this most extraordinary form of state power. Um, So Amari's life story highlights how deportation is both a continuation of certain forms of violence and a rupture from what precedes it. And working backwards, I started with Amari's story because working back, I think he allows me to draw out some elements of his life which made him more vulnerable and which I found in other people as well. The method that I'm doing now, kind of going from Amari's story to thinking about what it tells us about Britain is kind of the method of my my writing and my my defil. Um... So many of these things I'm going to talk about are common to other deported persons I met in Jamaica, and this is about the specific ways in which people are located in Britain, which make them vulnerable to these forms of state power. So first, for example, he he grew up in the care system, and his interaction with the criminal justice system as a looked-after child is not unusual. Care leavers are massively overrepresented in in the criminal justice system, both youth prisons and adult prisons. He grew up with very little money, without access to social and cultural capital, and in an area of London that was heavily policed. With his profile, poor young black male, he was repeatedly stopped and searched by the police, harassed as he put it, and therefore much more likely to end up being caught for something. His only prison time was for carrying a bladed article, and a lot of some of the people I met, not a lot, but some of the people I met carried knives as, knives as well at a certain age. And he narrates that as being scared of getting jumped after once being attacked by some, a group of boys when he was a teenager with a sword. So this is about his violent surroundings and the very real threats which encouraged Amari and other people like him at certain ages and in certain places to carry knives, which is heavily criminalised. And then this is a really common finding. His crimes as a minor and his record as a minor mean that he couldn't naturalise um, So because he would never pass a good character assessment, say, getting in trouble when you're 15, the consequences of that are that it's really hard to then become a citizen when you have indefinite leave, as he did. Um, So you're basically punished cumulatively for your actions as a child. And then the other thing, which I don't have time to go into properly, but 
the threshold for the criminal activity, which results in deportation, is increasingly being lowered. So his record was not serious. He didn't have a 12-month sentence, which is necessary to engage automatic deportation provisions. But he was deported under a thing called Operation Nexus, which is probably when the police kicked in after he was arrested for handling stolen uh, goods and not given any... They pursued no further action. He wasn't charged. That was probably when Operation Nexus team kicked in, which is a joint initiative by the police and the immigration authorities which targets foreign criminals. And in a case like this... It allows the, um, for the deportation of peace, people on the basis of their police record rather than their convictions, which includes police intelligence, arrests, cautions and charges that didn't stick. Uh, people are now deported with the Orwellian language of being deported on, non- on the basis of non-convictions. Uh, and when police intelligence can be based on hearsay and ideas uh, surrounding the gang, we have to consider the effects of institutional racism which is just to say the racist criminal justice system now increasingly has deportation consequences. And Operation Nexus, which was used in Amari's case, is one example of this written into policy. He spent 10 months in detention, uh, and lots of people talk about their experiences in detention. I've thought about that as a kind of proto-exile, the the first stage of deportation, where he was separated from his family. In in his own words, he was sent mad, and uh, the indefinite detention was profoundly damaging to his health. And then finally, a, lot, a big part of my work is to look at what happens when people arrive, arrive back. He's now in Jamaica. He has no idea how to go on. He's pursuing an appeal, but he's scared and doesn't know anyone. I WhatsApped him the other day, and he said surviving when I asked how he was. He doesn't really speak Patois and is immediately recognisable as someone who's been deported. So his distress is particularly marked, which is why I've talked about him here and also in, um, in the pieces I've written, journalistic pieces I've written, but his story is not exceptional. In my doc- doctorate, I'm focusing on people a bit like Amari who spent their formative years in the UK. Uh, so they moved as children, they speak with British accents, they call or called the UK their home. And I'm asking how and why did these people in particular end up getting deported to a Jamaica they had forgotten? Of course, part of my uh, work and my writing has to be about the policies, so the, the specific policies that have targeted foreign criminals who in recent years have been prioritised by the Home Office uh, in deportation drives. And it's also to do with deportation turn, which I think is actually Matthew's turn. (laughs) I didn't expect you to be here, but yeah. Deportation turn uh, more broadly, just the spike in deportations globally, the US being an obvious example. But um, it's part of that pattern, and it is certainly an effect of increasingly restrictive citizenship policies, the things that make it harder for people who move to the UK to end up becoming British. Um, but I don't want to explore the policy shifts in detail in this talk. I've written about them elsewhere. I've had people in border criminologies. Um, but the hostile environment and, and enthusiasm for deportation should be seen as a kind of background context. And, and here I want to explore who specifically is affected by this form of immigration control and ask what their stories tell us about Britain when we you know, trace their life stories, like, like I have done with Lenny's, and focusing on why these specific people get deported. So to understand that, we need to not, not understand only deportation policies, but also have a critical understanding of the criminal justice system and the broad social landscape in Britain and the social inequalities which determine who is vulnerable to different kinds of state power. Amari makes this very clear. His, class, his social class, his race, his age and his location are all crucial in determining his life trajectory. And this is why I think that the life stories of the people I've met in Jamaica provide a kind of window onto contemporary Britain a window onto a Britain increasingly defined by immigration control, 
but also a Britain defined by poverty, inequality, a punitive approach to criminal justice and by racism. Yeah, borders are reaching into the centre of British society, which is something I'm going to talk about, but they do not affect all equally. And hopefully the portraits I offer can help us think about how certain groups of people are more likely to be affected than others and demand that we theorise the relationship between immigration control and, and other forms of disadvantage. So just to tell you where I'm up to in my, um, my project... I'm in third year, so I'm just beginning to write up and work through field notes and interview transcripts. So as a result, yeah, I'm offering a lot of description here and hoping you can offer some feedback. Um, my project doesn't focus on um, Amari. He's not one of the main, the main people in it. I'm focusing on five informants, all men, who were deported to Jamaica between 2013 and 2015. Um, they all moved as children between the ages of 10 and 15, and they lived in England. Most, four of them lived in England until their 20s, and one until he was 50. Um, I spent six months in Jamaica since September 2015, meeting people, um, mainly in Kingston, but also in other places. And then I came back to England for 2016 and was meeting with friends and families. So going to the places where people I met in Jamaica lived and meeting with whether it was their partners or mothers, friends, brothers. And this allowed me to do a few things. Um, to get a different perspective on their lives and to see what other people said about their relationship to British society and to the state. Also to suss out the kinds of places where they grew up or lived, to walk around um, and yeah, get a sense for what those places were like. And it allowed me to verify things they told me. So one person, for example, told me he was arrested over 200 times. And that sounds like must be an exaggeration. But then when you speak to his brother and his friends and they talk about how they interacted with the police, you start to think it probably wasn't an exaggeration. Um, and then I think the portraits, which is how I define what I'm doing, the portraits are richer for having met with friends and family. I was able to kind of... I, I suppose it means that my, my project is an ethnography of the person out of place in Jamaica and then also the place without the person in the UK. And I try and patch these two things together and draw some sort of life story out of it, but it's always incomplete. And in trying to tell the, the story of someone who is out of place and out of time, these gaps uh, are part of the story. So I think a bit about things that are irretrievable, so there might be one participant's mother died um, while he was just after he was sent back lost contacts, people who they don't have contacts for anymore, people who've stopped talking to them. Or, um, and these are important ways in which I came to under, understand their stories as, as elsewhere, but also as a kind of erstwhile. To talk more about this idea that I'm doing portraits, um, Mitch Dunia, who's an urban ethnographer in America, is, is in an interview with Les Back, but it's this quote I come back to because I think it's a good, justifies what I think I'm trying to do. This is, I'll start a quote by him. I think that part of my job as an ethnographer, too, is to give my subjects the same opportunity that Hakim, one of his main informants, gave me, to be recognised as complex human beings, to unfold in that way, to develop as characters, as people, which is another important thing that I'd like to talk to you about, which is the issue of showing the people, which is not something we take seriously enough in a lot of ethnographic writing today. If you're going to get at the humanity of people, you can't just have a bunch of disembodied thoughts that come out of subjects' mouths in interviews without ever developing characters and trying to show people as full human beings. 
In order to do that, it is useful to have a character that lives in a text from chapter to chapter and is recognisable. Some people might take issue with that, but I would assert that, that that is because the standard for character development in contemporary sociological ethnography is very low. And I do agree with this in it being true in lots of cases that when you read social science writing and even ethnographic writing, you strain to think, who's that person again? Did I read about them in chapter one? I can't remember if that was that guy or that guy. Uh, and in that context, I think vignettes sometimes work as vehicles to say something theoretical and the person disappears. And I want to structure the chapters... Right now, I want to structure the chapters as by character, so rather than chronological, which some books on deportation have done, arriving in England, criminalisation, prison, uh, detention, back, in, back home... <laughs> To, to try and do them by characters, which, is, which presents different set of challenges, but I think gives the project something slightly different. Um, and with the deported persons I've met, people who are dis- defined as foreign criminals, you have to leave room for the fullness and for the contradiction. Uh, by that, I mean, this is part of writing against the dominant narrative, which would view these individuals as... Um, there's villains, ultimate villains, foreign criminals. If you read the press coverage on foreign criminals, they're kind of ultimate baddies. So it's partly about writing against that. It's part of why I want to give them a chance to come across as complex individuals. But it's also about writing against strains of migrant politics, which uh, appeal to abject victimhood or to the suffering of, of migrants, especially refugees. And these men are neither, the five men I'm talking about, are neither victims nor villains, and that's the point no one is. And we should work harder to avoid constructions which turn people into ideal victims and villains. So, yeah, the five, the five guys are all very different and allow me to explore different ways in which immigration control gets into people's lives at different stages. But overall, I hope that the, the project, the, the thesis, will offer a kind of window onto what I call multi-status Britain. Um, so let me define that after some coffee. You could also call it borders Britain, multi-status Britain. Um, I'm not sure if that is even a phrase I'll work with, but it's what I'm writing at the moment. So firstly, it's simply that there are more people in the UK who are not British. Um, This is according to the Migration Observatory at Compass. Between 1993 and 2014, the number of foreign citizens living in the UK increased from under 2 million to over 5 million, which means more and more people who live in the UK and call the UK home are not British citizens. I think about this especially in terms of reading I've done on sociology of race and ethnicity. There's a framework in which people are second generation of a kind of Windrush trajectory and that's what Britain's ethnic minorities look like and that's not necessarily true anymore, especially in terms of citizenship rights. But more than this, many have statuses which are more temporary and precarious and the immigration, this immigration control is more invasive and more widely enforced in different parts of society than it was 20 years ago. In other words, immigration control gets into people's lives more. Immigration and citizenship policy are increasingly restrictive, and the relationship between immigration, settlement and naturalisation has been unfastened in most countries in the global north. There are more snakes than ladders in this game. Uh, in the last few years, we're going to see if the sound works in a second. In the last few years, immigration controls have intensified, especially in terms of internal borders, which is one way that multi-status Britain has been talked about, uh, or we are all border guards now. Um, and we can see that in universities, for example. But yeah, I'm going to try and play a clip from a film called Everyday Borders, which, which sums up pretty well what I mean by um, multi-status Britain. 
Can anyone see a mouse icon? No. That link Sorry, I didn't have time to get the links up. Ready. Let me have a. Jeez, sorry about this. Suzy Explorer. I hope the sound's going to work. No, it's not. Um, maybe... I can't see very well. That's up. It's on the video one as well. Um, I mean, this one's not as important as the second video. <laughs> um, I mean, you should watch that documentary if, if interested, and it's a good thing to show to students as well. Um, but it basically is about the way that immigration control is entering forms of employment, education, health, housing. Um, in the Immigration Act 2014, specifically, this, this one's about, and the 2016 Act is just worse. Um, and yet that's, that's a good way to kind of explain what I mean by multi-status Britain in layman's terms. And then the first point to make about multi-status Britain with my work is kind of an obvious description of what I found when I met people. Because it's increasingly difficult to acquire British citizenship, immigration control is increasingly enacted against people who look and sound British. And actually Mary was one of the first people to talk about this in detention when they prioritised the deep detention and deportation of foreign offenders. Um, Mary spoke about how uh, a lot of the guys who were in detention all of a sudden had British accents and got on with the guards in different ways. Um, so I guess I'm, built, I'm seeing that the effects of that in Jamaica. Those who moved as teenagers, children or, or toddlers, and even people who were born in the UK are increasingly likely to face them, find themselves in detention or facing removal or deportation. So to give an anecdote... I went to visit a guy in Brookhouse Detention Centre, which is near Gatwick, last year. And he'd moved to the UK at four, lived in South London ever since, and he's now 20 or 21. He's a Londoner, goes without saying. And I was actually devastated to find out he was on the charter flight as well in September. But while I was chatting to him in the visiting room and listening to his story, I could see another visit going on over the shoulder. These three guys, from they were from Peckham because I heard them as we both went through all the security and came in. Um, and there's about three of them, they're probably about 18 or 19. And I was struck by this, all these London accents, all young, all very young, all from south-east London, the guy I was visiting and the other group of young men, and they're in the visiting room of an immigration removal centre, which is a space I think we associate with something else. It reminded me that immigration status as a division carves right through friendship groups, neighbourhoods, schools and intimate lives which I've said elsewhere, perhaps we now deport black Britons um, as a kind of provocative statement. And then this is where I need to show the video, because what I do think is when I listen to the transcripts, I feel like too much is lost when you then write them, because you lose the accent. And that's especially to explain to British people what is happening. One of the easiest ways 
um, I mean, you might not be able to persuade the racists in the shires, but you can just hearing that London, those London and Birmingham accents, does a lot to just tell the story. So I was going to try and play a video of. Shall I try again? I, I mean, um, here it says vol up, so maybe that will do something. Of this guy called Kashtastic. I don't know if anyone's. Yeah, um, he was removed rather than deported. There's a slight difference. He was visa overstayer, effectively, but he moved when he was four or six, and he was sent back at 20. Um, and he sort of talks a lot about... he. Well, he, he kept doing music in Jamaica, and whoever it was that were making videos for him, you know, supported him to continue to make music. So I think a lot more interesting stuff <laughs> he's saying since he's been removed, but just to listen to his accent, and this song specifically is about... Well, it's called the removal. Yeah, so he's talking about how he was in detention and his his song was in the charts, and then on the plane because they get the, the most people get deported or removed on the plane at the back of a Virgin Atlantic flight. So he was there at the back of the flight, and someone recognised him and wanted a picture with him. So he's talking about how that was surreal. Um, yeah, he's just he he's very similar and very familiar. He's from South London to the people I met. Although he doesn't have a criminal record, so he's perhaps um, slightly different in that way. The wider point is, is in terms of multi-status Britain, the wider point is not just that we deport black Britons. Um, it is that in multi-status Britain, immigration control is more expansive and invasive, and it affects more people and gets into their lives more. That's the general, that's the general kind of landscape. And so while I focus on deportation... We might also do neighbourhood studies and ask what difference does immigration status make. We could look at employment, education, health, as well as the criminal justice system and question where and when immigration control kicks in and how it's experienced. Uh, and there's also important work to be done with young people, those in schools who have insecure immigration status, those who aren't able to naturalise because they can't pass a good character assessment, people in social care. Uh, and among the homeless too, one of my main participants was homeless in London for fifteen, most part of 15 years and he couldn't access housing or hostels because he was without status. The point there is that this, the relevance of this is not just to people who study borders explicitly, it's also anyone who's trying to understand Britain needs to place immigration control within their understanding of inequality, violence in Britain. Um, if borders are... I think I've missed a couple of things here. Yeah. If borders are every day, as, as the, the video that was the first video was going to show, then ethnographic methods are especially well placed to examine them. And I hope we will see more work that explores how immigration status and non citizenship matter in contemporary Britain and how they get into people's lives. And the final point I haven't got super diversity if, for people who work in uh, the social sciences will probably have heard of this. Um, he basically, I mean, he's criticised a lot because his paper was mainly descriptive, but the useful thing which I retain and which is similar to multi-status Britain is that uh, ethnic minorities are increasingly divided by migration status and the immigration status matters um, and is a social division that has consequences. He was criticised for being too descriptive and not using the word, not really talking about racism or power or intersectionality, which is maybe, there's a long lineage of talking about these issues before he did. Um, and in my work, I try to overcome this shortcoming by following the violence and looking at how immigration control interacts with race, class, gender, age, region, among other things. 
So focusing not just on status but on bordering and on state power um, perhaps has the potential to overcome some of the criticisms of Vertebex framework on super diversity. So now I want to offer some cursory findings and go through, if I have time, two people. Um, what, what time shall I speak until? Okay, I can leave 10, definitely. Cool. Um, so I'll go through two people. As I said, there's five people, a chapter for each, as I, as I see it now. Uh, one of the important things that differs between them is whether they had papers, whether they had immigration status before they were deported. So Kashtastic, for example, didn't. That's why he says he couldn't go abroad on tour. Um, so his experience is one of being without status. For other people, they have indefinite leave, and it's only when the criminal child, the criminal conviction comes in that that is stripped of them. So I'll start with Michael. It's a picture of Michael. He moved to the UK when he was 13. Um, he never had his papers. So as he re reached adulthood, he really wanted to work, but he was unable to do so legally. He was signing at the Home Office reporting centre from the age of 18. He did try and find work. He, he worked picking strawberries at one point. He worked at a mechanics and was paid about £15 a day. He worked in a Caribbean restaurant but was largely unpaid and he tried to find painting and decorating work. His father was able to apply for his own indefinite leave to remain with his new family and his partner's children, but Michael was not included on their application and felt unwelcome by his father, who only ever gave him a sofa to sleep on, not his own room. So as a result, he became very independent, tried to... Um, he lived with a couple of girlfriends at different points. Um, he tried to regularise his stay himself and with having tried strawberry picking and other things, he decided to sell drugs um, to, to save, to apply for his stay. He made some money, stopped dealing and then applied. Uh, his solicitor was rubbish, which is very common. He was unsuccessful and he was devastated. But in the meanwhile, he had met, fallen in love with Katie, who was a British citizen. Uh, they're in the West Midlands, by the way. He quickly became very close with her two young children, having begun his relationship with, with Katie when the youngest was six months old. They'd been together for around two years when he proposed. Um, as Katie's mother told me, Michael is very old-fashioned and he wanted the wedding to be special. He began selling Class A's again to try and make money for his wedding and because he was also going to apply and appeal um, the decision to not grant him leave to remain. At this point, he was caught by the police and ended up serving over a year in prison before being deported. Um, the point with, with Michael is that him not having immigration status coloured his whole life. So the way in which it's easy to narrate his story um, is that without status he was forced to make some difficult decisions and perhaps made bad ones, as Katie's mum told me. But still he was kind of unable to access work and education, which he would have liked to. Although he went to school um, in the UK, he was engaged to a British citizen and he was acting as a father figure to her children he was unable to work, and then when he did go to prison, the children suffered, um, they struggled to sleep, they missed him deeply, and now he's in Jamaica, they can't understand why he won't come back to England and to his life with them. Michael is still with Katie, but they're both pretty depressed and despairing about how to move forward with their situation. So in his case, deportation is both a continuation of his circumstances, in that it's the ultimate realisation of his alienage, his, state, his, his lack of status, his irregularity, which he had lived with for years and struggled with. But it was also a rupture in the profoundest sense because it was an exile from a home, a family, and a love he had treasured, even if it wasn't a love he had, that the Home Office recognised. 
But then for others, they did have papers, so their story is, has to be told in a different way. It can't be explained in terms of not having um, the right to work and claim benefits. So this is, I'm going to focus on, on Chris, who um, I'm trying to write a draft chapter. So I'm, I'm, I chose to do Chris partly because I think he brings up lots of different issues, not just um, one particular set. So I wrote, well, he, we, we had a conversation on WhatsApp for this article, so that's mainly him telling his own story and me transcribing his WhatsApp voice notes. So if anyone's interested in how he tells his story in his own words, then search for that, that one. Um, so he moved to the UK when he was 14. He lived in West London. He said the first three years he was well behaved. He went to school and came home and looked after his younger siblings. But by the time he started going to college, he said he started to learn, and these are his own words, about what London was really like. He said hanging out with some friends, he started hanging out with some friends, drinking a bit, and enjoyed fighting, and began doing some street robberies. They would go out, have a few drinks and a smoke, and sometimes if they saw someone, they would rob them for their phone or wallet. Uh, he was caught and convicted at age 19. Just before he was 20, he was convicted. And just to draw attention to this, 19 is the peak age of offending behaviour in the UK. And Chris's offence here is not, not extraordinary and comes at a time when lots of young men end up in the criminal justice system, at a time when he was asserting himself and emphasising that he was hard, tough and didn't care about what society told him was right. Chris wouldn't blame anyone else for his offence, although we do have to factor in that he was more likely to be caught and more likely to get a prison sentence than if he had been white. During his first sentence, he was threatened with deportation, but he won on appeal, and he moved up to Leeds to be with his mum and his sister, sisters and little brothers. Uh, he tried to find work, but was unable to, as a young black man with a criminal record and no qualifications in Leeds. He was always going to struggle. But that said, from listening to the way he talks about it, he was definitely he would always have been discriminated against in the labour market, but his attempts may have been lacklustre as well. He didn't really know where to look for work or whether it would pay, and he was happy to um, sign on unemployment benefits and then to deal drugs casually, starting with weed. But then, so he was sort of I think he was bored, but he wasn't he was content. Then his girlfriend fell pregnant, and six months later, another girl, another woman who was in a relationship with, also fell pregnant. So stressed out by his obligations to provide and prepare for his two children on the way, and unconvinced that formal employment held any solutions, he began dealing more substantively. I realise now as well the two cases I've given are both for dealing drugs, but half of those who were returned to Jamaica from the UK after criminal conviction are for drug, drugs offences, which I think is quite easy to understand in terms of economic explanations. So yeah, when he talks about his... Yeah, so he started dealing more substantively when the two kids were on the way. And when he talks about this time, he speaks, he speaks both tenderly about the birth of his children and then the first year or two when he would see them both a few times a week, he would na navigate those complex relationships to, to be a dad to his kids and it gave him a lot of pleasure and he was very involved. But at other times he speaks about that same period as about a kind of fast life, quick money and his involvement with a peer group who encouraged a certain kind of badness um, so he said he was spiralling he said his, his crimes may have got worse at that point he was, it was a difficult time for him he was officially homeless as well because uh, he was in a house but he built up debt arrears and ended up without secure housing so it, there was a lot of things going on for him 
But yeah, he spoke about himself as hard, scared of nothing, willing to defend his, his friends to the last in one breath. And then in the next he would talk about his responsibilities as a father and the profound happiness that fatherhood gave him. So maybe you can read this quote quicker than I can read it out loud because I'm going a bit slowly. Importantly, Chris as a bad boy and Chris as a tender young father are both true. He was defined by this contradiction, both vulnerable and tough, soft and fearless, hopeful and destructive. At this point, while he was looking after the two kids, he was, he was selling drugs. And he was arrested one night and charged with intent to supply Class A's. He was released on bail and continued to see them. Um, but when they were both aged one, he was convicted and got two years served one. In the courts... Oh, no, so he served his year... Um, but at the end of his sentence, he was held while they tried to deport him. So he was held for the, another year while he appealed against his deportation in prison and was then eventually deported. He did have two appeals, and in the courts, his family life claim was rejected. It is clear from the decision letters that the courts thought Chris was not a responsible father. He had confusing relationships with the two women who mothered his children, and he was not a provider. They even used that language. He, was, he had no stable employment, and he had resorted to crime twice. This is a quote from the, um, one of the rejections of his appeal. The panel were not satisfied that the appellant had shown that he had established family life in the UK with either partner or child. We find that such family life as has been established is of fragile and uncertain nature. And I'll stop reading it there. So ideas, the fragile and uncertain nature thing is something I've highlighted because clearly ideas about what a family and what a father should look like are central to these court decisions on family life and these ideas are racialised. I suggest that, though implicit, Chris's race is important in how, in part of how he became legible in the courts as a father. I met lots of deported men who left behind children, and they were highly aware of racialised discourses about absent black fathers. They spoke about how deportation was the reason their children were growing up without a dad. Chris also tried to emphasise his relationship with his mum and younger siblings to say that they, that they needed him and he needed them, but this was completely ignored. Um, However, having met his mum and his younger siblings, it did have a, a big effect on him. I wanted to show you, I gave Chris a scrapbook to do some stuff in if he wanted to, to tell the story. And when his little brothers came to visit him in Jamaica, they, he asked them to draw, to represent what him being deported meant to them. And, uh, and unfortunately, I don't have the picture, but it's quite touching uh, to see the way they, they drew their experience of Chris having been taken from them. When he arrived, when he arrived back... Um, he was homeless for some time. He then managed to rent a room in a garrison town called Rockfort. And he was surrounded by, by intense violence and poverty. And in some ways his toughness came out even more because perhaps it was a way for him to survive on the street and make sure he wasn't taken for a ride in a new place. So when we look back at Chris's life, he did not suffer because of his immigration status, as in Michael's case. He could work and claim benefits, and he, and he did at different points. But he did make bad decisions in the context of limited options based on his social class, level of education and his surroundings and race is always at play in the criminal justice system. So he was, he was invested in being tough and hard and was certainly seduced by that image of himself. Uh, so to understand his life we need to pay critical attention to race, class and masculinities. But really his offending history is not particularly remarkable and his first offence meant, as in, as in other cases I've talked about, that he was unable to naturalise um, so we might ask how the state could have intervened differently with a 19-year-old like Chris who's been convicted of street robberies. 
again, there's ideas about the. I'll rush through this ideas about the the black family and what father should look like, which are definitely at play in his immigration hearing. And and this is a point I'm also thinking about. Chris is not a saint, and he wouldn't claim to be. But the point is that he is now in Jamaica because of the time at which he moved, the timing of his offences, the age he was, and the way the law changed around him um, as he progressed through his life course. So there is kind of a cohort of young people who are, whose offending history we, we should know about because it's quite common, who are now being deported all around the world just because of the time at which they moved and committed offences. So to skip to, towards the conclusion... Um, yeah, I, this is a Stuart Hall quote, but I guess I want to see this project as a kind of intervention. So he says, I realised, this is about why people might write, why social scientists write, I realised that almost everything I write is a kind of political intervention. It may not be about politics explicitly, but it's about trying to shift the terms of the debate, intervene on one side or another, clarify something, wipe some other distorting views out of place so that something else can come through. I suppose that's critique or criticism or whatever it is, but I'm aware that it is a kind of political intervention. So I hope that my work will work as a kind of intervention in discourse. And so to conclude, I'm just going to draw attention to some gaps which I think I might be able to begin to be beginning to fill, um, and maybe discussion points if we have time. So these, these are just points that should have come out from the stories I was telling. But racism in the criminal justice system and in wider society can increasingly have deportation consequences. And that wider point is that people who study race and ethnicity need to think about status and immigration control. Um, as, as a result, I would say that immigration control in the UK might be central to the way race is lived. And equally, the same point goes the other direction, that scholars who study migration should engage with the literature on social inequality and racism in Britain. If the borders are being internalised, um, then we need to kind of explore uh, the literature on inequality, class, gender, age, etc., I did a Masters in Migration Studies here, and we didn't really talk about racism, for example. Um, this is another point. In light of Brexit, I think a lot of the narratives I, I'm getting at unsettle the idea of a kind of... The white working class is the real losers right now in contemporary Britain. Um, it is important to highlight that not everyone... At the moment, I think it's an important intervention to highlight that not everyone who's working class is white, or indeed British, so it isn't. Um, and the pervasive narrative on the forgotten white working class, which is so central to left and right calls to control immigration, is challenged from below by the kinds of people I met in Jamaica, by their friends and family who they left behind in Britain, people of different ethnicities. So their stories draw attention to the local forms of living together that are disrupted by immigration control rather than protected by it. Relatedly, immigration control carves through intimate lives, uh, affecting more than just individuals, British citizens like Michael's, girlfriend, for example, who and her kids who are now growing up without their father and partner. So we should ask who is affected, what new divisions are carved between friends and family members, and which British citizens are affected, and which what the experience of ethnic minority communities in multi-status Britain are. Quick point, the, the idea that migrants or refugees are not criminals doesn't always work, because sometimes they are, <laughs> and we should ask why they are. Yeah, it's a call for a more radical politics about borders, I guess. We should, yeah, we should think about immigration status and not having citizenship as a social division, if that's how we think about the British society. And finally, I hope that my work will kind of show the importance of portraiture as a way to, a way to write well, really. And this is the challenge now, to try and, for me, to try and develop portraits that show these men neither as victims nor villains, but as complex people who have been wrenched from home 
and whose stories illustrate the profound violence of immigration control in a world increasingly defined by borders. Thanks for listening. Sorry, I had to push through the end there. Thank you.